15 is where we find ourselves this morning. And this is one of the most sacred portions of Scripture. Not that we will, we will go through the whole account of the, the, the trial and death of the Lord Jesus Christ this week. Next week, we will um, move into what we'll call the, the Gospel of Isaiah. Uh, as Mark puts it forward, Mark is very intentional in reflecting the prophet Isaiah's telling of the gospel. We'll look at that next week from verse 16 onwards. But this week we're going to look at the, uh, chapter 15, verse 1 through to uh, verse 15, which is the account of when Jesus is brought in front of Pilate, the procurator over, uh, um, uh, over Judea under the Romans. It's very fitting that James read for us Psalm 2 this morning as we begin our service. Those of you who are familiar with Psalm 2 will remember the themes. Some of you may have been hearing it for the first time or you're not all that familiar with it. But the themes of Psalm 2 is that because God, reigning over the world, reigns with a law and a kingdom that he is building, the sinful men and women on earth, especially as they, as they build their own kingdoms and empires and set their own people on the throne, the people and the kingdoms convulse and want to throw off the obligation to obey God. They want to throw off the obligation to honor him such that they can receive all of the glory. And what God has done is that he has spoken in his wrath. This is, if you're a king who is in opposition to God, this statement is the most fearful statement you could ever hear. God says, I have set my king on my hill. We just hear that. It doesn't really mean a whole lot to us. But if you're a king trying to receive all glory and God says, no, I have a kingdom, I have a king, I have a throne, and I've put someone on it, you know it's bad news for you. Psalm 2 goes on to say that all kings will either bend their knee and repent to the Lord Jesus Christ for their sins and be saved, or Jesus will shatter their heads in the way. Awesome. Psalm 110 tells us that, that Jesus shatters chiefs over the wide earth. Now that could be translated as like kings, chiefs. It could also just be translated as heads, skulls. Jesus crumples kingdoms whenever he sees fit. He rises some up. He, he, he brings some down to fall, all in his own sovereignty. But in the human sphere, as people respond to the kingship of Jesus and the growth of the church and the proclamation of the gospel, so God deals with them. If they... If if they reject the Lord Jesus, he rejects and destroys them. If they, they honor him and they bend their knee to him in repentance, then he honors them. And we see this relationship in Mark 15, verse 1 through 15. We see that Jesus is now being brought before the leaders of the Jews. We saw that in the previous weeks. And now he's being brought, not to Nero, not to the Caesar, but at least to, to one of the representations of Rome, Pilate. And we're going to see that he tries and exacts a judgment over Jesus while the Jews try and get him killed when really Jesus is the king of kings who does not shake in fear whatsoever. We see here the wretched plot of the people and the righteous plan of God. So, so far what we've seen is that Jesus was uh, uh, arrested in the garden where he was praying. He was taken to, to Annas, the, 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 the man who the Jews recognized as the high priest. He uh, condemned him and sent him over to the Sanhedrin, uh, which was the 70 plus uh, uh, Jewish elders who ran the Supreme Court of Israel, basically. The chief priests, as we see them called in this passage, they condemned him on the charge of blasphemy. And then uh, we see Peter 
denied Jesus as Jesus was being dragged towards his prison cell. Jesus was in the prison cell between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And for the sake of maintaining some phony legality, the Jews had by law, they had to have a, a court session in the daytime. So they bring Jesus out of the cell, and as we see in uh, verse 1 here, they have another meeting in the daytime to pretty much just uh, formalize all of the proceedings. Can I get some witnesses? Who heard Jesus commit blasphemy? There we go. Enough witnesses condemned, sent him to Pilate for judgment. Read with me in uh, chapter 15, verse 1. You follow along, I'll be reading from the ESV. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. That's the Sanhedrin. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that the chief priests... Uh, Sorry, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out to him, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate Wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant word in our midst. Amen. This passage, especially, <clears throat> especially verse 1, reads precisely as if Mark is trying to tell us Jesus' prophecy is coming true step by step. Jesus had said in Mark 10, verse 33 to 34, he was speaking to his disciples and he said, We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. That's what Judas did, delivered him over. And they will condemn him to death. That is exactly what they have just done. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. That's Pilate. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after that, he will rise in three days. Jesus' prophecy is, is coming precisely true. This is all according to God's righteous plan, and yet there is a wretched plot of the people going on. We're going to first look at Pilate, look at his sin, and why his sin and what he does now is so wretched. And then we're going to look at the Jews, the, Jews the, the, the chief priests particularly, the leaders of the Jews, and see their sinful iniquity in this whole plot. And then, of course, we're going to look at God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and see what their part in all of this horrible uh, occurrence is. So look first at, uh, back up to verse 1, as it mentions here that they, they bound him, as Jesus said they, they would, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Uh, Pilate was, as we said earlier, he was a, 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 a sort of 
representative of Rome in the Judea uh, 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 Sumerian area. He was placed there to sort of oversee some politics. He was placed there to somewhat oversee the military and to oversee economics. He was there as a, as a peacekeeper, as a representative of Rome, kind of like a governor general in one of their outposts. He was there to keep peace, but history tells us that he is one of the most unwise, intentionally provocative rulers that that area ever had. So don't get confused with the Herods and the kings. The kings were, were semi, uh, uh, the Herodians, I mean, were semi-Jewish, uh, semi-Gentile men who had risen to power and ruled over different sections of the country. But Pilate was particularly representing Rome. And it was his joy, it was like his weekend hobby to go out and tick off the Jews. There was times when he brought shields with Roman deities on them into the Temple Mount. That's, that's idolatry to the Jews, and he almost slaughtered thousands of them because they were protesting that. They called his bluff and he had to withdraw. There was other times when he, when he uh, had mingled sacrifices with pig's blood in the temple. There was other times when he had done all sorts of horrible things just to, to stir up the Jews. He was extremely unwise in his dealing. That was, that was not his job. He was there to try and keep the peace and he would stir them up regularly. He had the misuse of temple funds when he took the temple money and used it to build his own uh, highway or an aqueduct, something like that, which was highly problematic. Uh, problematic to the Jews. And of course, as we said, he had slaughtered number, uh, a number of them on different occasions. He ends up at the end of his political life committing suicide on his way to trial in Rome, where he is going to be on trial because of some of the slaughters that he, that, that he uh, oversees in, uh, in Israel. He, he slaughtered a particular group of Jews and he's going on his way to face uh, the, the price for that and he kills himself on the way. Repent, believe in Jesus, or Jesus will slaughter you kings in the way. Pilate is a tremendous example of the principle of Psalm 2. But the Jews brought him to Jesus, uh, 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 brought Jesus to him rather, because while the Jews uh, wanted to kill Jesus, they did not at this point have political or legal um, allowance to actually commit uh, the, the, the death penalty. We know that in the book of Acts, we see this happen a few times. They kill Stephen, they kill all sorts of Christians in Jerusalem, but that was against the law. They were supposed to, if they, uh, this was some, what part of the way that Rome would keep the peace, if people had the death penalty in their regions, it had to be Rome's judges that can them and put them to death. And so they bring Jesus to Pilate so that they can have this committed. Pilate is ultimately uninterested. First of all, because they've woken him up at the crack of dawn and, and, and called him out onto his villa in order to oversee uh, some debacle that they are having. Pilate is extremely uninterested in the religious affairs of the Jews. He does not care about them at all. He's just frustrated by their religious squabbles. But the Jews had said, and we read this in another portion, uh, 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 one of the other Gospels, they said things like, Jesus is, is stirring up the whole nation. Jesus is telling us to not pay taxes to Caesar. Jesus is telling us to stir up against our overseers and against our overlords. Now, as soon as he says that, as soon as he hears that from the people, he has to, he has to give an answer. He has to do something because somebody is apparently a, a revolutionary, building up the, the nation in order to overthrow Rome. That's Pilate's job description to squash out. So they, they force him into a corner. He has to answer this. Also, we would have realized that, that just at the beginning of the week, remember on, on Monday, on uh, uh, Sunday, Monday, there's debate about which day it was, but Jesus rode in on the donkey into Jerusalem 
And you remember that there was thousands encompassing him, screaming and praising that this is the king, the son of David, come to bring us release. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That whole, that whole scene, when you have thousands of people lining the highway, chanting that the king has come to bring salvation, and he goes into the temple, that is a, a big red flag for a guy like Pilate. So when he's brought to them and, and he realizes, oh, this is the king of the Jews. This is who they were praising on that day. Now, what Pilate doesn't realize is what a lot of Christians don't realize. These are different crowds. There was up to 2 million people in the city at this time who, who, who came to Jerusalem for the celebrations. And we should not get into that. It's just because it makes for a good sermon point. People say, the same crowd that were cheering him on Monday are calling for his crucifixion on Friday. Inaccurate. There was very likely different parts of the crowd. Some people were convinced that he was their Messiah and would be extremely disappointed when he was killed. They would not have been brought to, the, to Pilate's courtyard at 6 a.m. when the word got around, we're trying to kill Jesus. They, they didn't get that memo. There were other people who were on the in crowd. They, they were aware that this is bad for our nation. This is politically dangerous to have this guy stirring up trouble in Jerusalem. It's that crowd and still a large crowd, but not the same crowd. Pilate has, therefore, this interest in knowing what is going on. This is, this is a lot of political riot about to uh, break out. Therefore, he couldn't ignore it. Verse 2 tells us, that Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you this guy I'm hearing about? Are you the one who's come to take ruler, a, a, a rule over Israel? He says, um, uh, Jesus says, you have said so. Basically, it, it, he's, he's just giving a, a neutral affirmation. It, it's as you say. Yep, you've said it, Pilate. That's, that's about right. But he, he doesn't go on to explain. He doesn't, he doesn't claim that he's going to come and pull down Pilate. He's going to destroy Rome. He just, he just mutters it. Yep, that is correct. And so Pilate is, is rather confused. He is used to people, especially the insurrectionists like Barabbas, the guys who stir up the city to revolt, who his hordes grab and pull to judgment before him, he is used to grown men, leaders of armies, squirming in front of him. Because he knows that, that he has, and they know that he has, the power with a click of his fingers to end their life. Yet he's Jesus, answering calmly, not at all afraid. John's account in chapter 18 tells us that Jesus just shakes his head at Pilate and says, you have no authority over me except what God has given to you. He's not afraid at all. And Pilate is very, very much confused by the whole scene. Why do the Jews want their king dead? Why does the king not care that he's about to die? What is this whole scene in front of him? <clears throat> but in all honesty, Pilate probably didn't think that Jesus was much of a threat because he was not like the other Jewish revolutionaries, spitting and cursing and crying out uh, destruction upon Rome. He was quite calm in his presence. There was no word of a Jesus army. There was no followers that were coming with swords. There was, there was not even an overthrow when Jesus was being arrested, save Peter's bad backhand, which chopped a dude's ear off. Not a big problem to Pilate. There was no reason that he would seem like the great threat that everybody was making him out to be. And so he wanted to throw out the case. He wanted to just say, this saves me a lot of time. Jesus is not a threat. Let him go. I hate these guys anyway out here on my porch. Let's get them all gone. I'm going to keep on sleeping in. But when he brought them out to them, <coughs> uh, we see in uh, uh, verse 2, um, 
uh, and the, uh, sorry, verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. So the other Gospels tell us that, that at this point, Pilate went back out to the people and said, there is nothing wrong with Jesus. There's no issue here that I need to deal with. You guys just go and give him a slap on the wrist, do whatever you want, ban him from his sacrifices. I don't care. I'm going to go eat some pig. He tells them that, and, and they, or, or that's my summary, uh, that he tells them that, and they say, no, no, they start accusing him of more. He's lying about taxes. He's leading everybody against Rome. He's lying to us. He's being, bringing uh, false teaching everywhere. He's, he's going to cause the trouble. They, they accuse him of many charges. And so Pilate walks back in. Verse 4, Pilate asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. So that Pilate, uh, uh, sorry, but Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. He was absolutely amazed that somebody could be standing here with so many false accusations being thrown at him by a crowd and he was so calm. Why would he not, at the moment where he could secure his own release, beg for his freedom to the highest authority in the land? Why would this Jesus not grovel or threaten? Why is he so unconcerned and unbothered by their accusations? And at least part of this answer is because it was prophesied to be so. Isaiah 53 verse 7 said, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 1 Peter 2 will go on to, uh, to refer very much to the same principle and say, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There is at least a lesson here for us. As before we start going on to the theological implications and, and the story breaking down, Peter, when Peter reads this and he, he, he applies it in his letter of 1 Peter chapter 2, he wants us to see here a tremendous application, an example that we are called to embody when we ourselves are falsely accused. Every single one of us, every Christian is going to have some point in your life when you have people who are threatening you, accusing you, assaulting you, insulting you, telling lies about you and slandering you. Every single one of us will have to deal with that. As, and as Psalm 39 verse 1 prays, uh, it prays that God would give to me a heart that will not open my mouth sinfully in the presence of the scoffers. Every single one of us needs to see Jesus' example here and pray that the Holy Spirit would conform us to it. We will all experience things that are undeserved on a human realm, undeserved for what we're suffering. Jesus is not aloof to that. He does not uh, 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 have to take a guess at how that feels. He has experienced it. And yet, as Peter said, he went there, he walked that path, he suffered righteously and quietly. Uh, it doesn't mean that we can't do, take the right route in order to um, uh, bring about righteousness in a certain situation. However, there is a difference between rightly and justly responding to an accusation and reacting, reviling back, attacking back at those who would accuse us. Jesus is, is our tremendous, tremendous example here. There are always opportunities to glorify God in the middle of accusation. And whenever you do that, 
Whenever you are under false accusation, and let it be false, do not be in the situation where you are accused rightly. Live a right and uh, 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 a life that is abiding by the law of God and your conscience, so that when accusations come and they be false, in that moment, if you are able to give glory to God and patiently suffer, you are the most like Christ that you could be. Living righteously, falsely accused, glorifying God, that is what Jesus is embodying here before Pilate, listening to the yelling of the crowd. Living righteously, falsely accused, still resting in and glorifying God. What a tremendous example and encouragement we have there. Hebrews 12 verse 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let us follow in Christ's example in that way. But as we sort of wrap up this sort of study of, of Pilate, we see his guilt. We see his guilt in, in manifold ways. Here, Jesus has been proclaimed by Pilate innocent more than three times over this, over this uh, uh, dialogue as we bring all of the Gospels together. More than three times, Pilate says, by a matter of historical, legal, transcribed fact, Jesus is innocent. He does not deserve to die. Meaning Pilate knew that he deserved in that moment to be let go from any charges and any guilt. His job should have been so easy that night if he had the spine to stick to what was right. But he did not. This is why Jesus was so silent, by the way. He, he just wasn't entertaining it. He, Pilate spoke to Jesus quickly, went out and said, he's fine, he's righteous, came back in and started to continue to question him. At that point, Jesus stops answering because he's already said to him, you know what is right, you know what is true, you know that I'm righteous, I won't entertain this little game that you're trying to play to relieve your conscience. Jesus remained silent. Pilate was scared, however, for his political career. We see that in verse 15 of today's passage. He was scared of the Jews because if they bring up a revolt, it's his job that is on the line. He's going to have to kill some of them again. He's going to have to fill out all of the paperwork with HR about why he slaughtered so many Jews. He is afraid and he knows that he only has so many uh, chances left with Caesar before he is fired. So what he does is that he condemns a righteous man, something that is explicitly condemned in Scripture. Proverbs 17, verse 15, says, He who justifies the wicked, that is, declare them righteous, and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination before the Lord. Isaiah 5, 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Exodus 23, verse 7, Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous. For God says, I will not acquit the wicked. Pilate here condemns a righteous man, and God would not acquit Pilate for his wickedness. He would see to it that Pilate dies on his way to Rome. Pilate is guilty here in the wretched plot as his passiveness and cowardice and self-preservation brings a righteous man to death. But we move on. And look with me at verse 6. <coughs> This is where we start getting introduced to the, the utter evil of the Jewish leaders. I mean, we've seen it the whole way along, I know, but, but this is where it apexes. While 
while they have been accusing him from the beginning of being satanic and the rest, of being a drunkard, while they've opposed him and brought arguments against him that were weakly founded, uh, he was, they, were, they, were, they were bringing false charges against him, they were insulting him, they were attacking him, they were plotting his death for his whole ministry. Don't just view this as a bad day when the leaders woke up on the wrong side of the bed, we all had our danfalls, this was a, this was a, a, a day that was out of character. No, this day, when they kill Jesus through the work of the Romans, this is a dissection of their heart. This is a perfect x-ray into their soul, what they are like, and what their spiritual leadership really consisted of. It starts because they have already brought him, in the previous verses, they've already started lying about what Jesus has done. They condemned him on blasphemy charges, and then instead of bringing him to Pilate and saying, well, here's what he's done, he's blasphemed, they change the charge. They say, well, now it's political so that Pilate does something. They've already been lying in order to kill a righteous man, but here is where it gets even worse, with the introduction of the story of Barabbas. Verse 6, now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner whom they asked. This was a tradition, a sort of a, a peace deal that he had with them. Every big Jewish holiday, he gives them back one of their prisoners that is still on death row, whoever they please. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, so this is somebody who had been a part of, uh, of, the, of the, the riot up against Pilate. Uh, uh, likely this was the one where Pilate brought the shields into the Temple Mount and the people revolted. Barabbas murdered a Roman citizen. He is here on death row. There was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate do as he usually, to do as he usually did for them. <coughs> so while Pilate has this deal with them, Barabbas, in God's providence, was, was this 11th hour chance for repentance. They didn't take it. God allowed this little detail into this story to show to us just how blinded by rage and jealousy the Jewish leadership and crowd had become. They did not have the physical or legal power to kill Jesus, but they took absolute responsibility for it. At every chance where they could have turned around, they did nothing. They sprinted headlong. Even in Matthew 27, there is a portion where Pilate says to them, you know, I'm washing my hands of this man's blood. I'm dipping my hands in a bowl. I'm cleansing my hands from his blood. I'm not responsible for this. And the Jews voluntarily pick up that responsibility. They said, if responsibility has to fall anywhere, let it be on us. Listen to what they said. When Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. No, he wasn't, because water doesn't wash away sins. God still held him accountable. He said to them, see to it yourselves. And the Jewish people answered, his blood be on us and our children. They willingly, voluntarily, and happily took responsibility for Jesus' blood. But this Barabbas, this whole, whole scene that we see happen as they, they, they sort of start coming up the steps to Pilate's uh, portico and they ask him, uh, you know, do for us what we usually do. Now, I don't know why they started asking this. Probably it's just because the mob is a disorganized mess and uh, different people were crying out and asking for different things. They didn't really have a plan going forward here. Uh, but somebody asks, hey, why don't you do for us that thing you usually do? Maybe this person wanted Jesus released. We don't know. But they mention it and Pilate says, of course. Of course I can do that. Now, he sees here an opportunity to get out of killing Jesus. 
Pilate sees that this opportunity, what they want, because uh, we're also told in this verse that, that Pilate knew that the chief priests, the leaders of the people, were jealous of Jesus and so brought him. He thinks that maybe I can get on side with the rest of the crowd, offer them Jesus, they'll cry out for Jesus, their king, I'll send him out, I'll have to deal with the, the chief priests later. He could tell they were doing it out of envy, and the crowds probably weren't on par with this. So he offers them, you know, well, let's do it, let's get me off the hook, let's get rid of the, the charge of the chief priests, do you want Jesus back? But in this moment, the other Gospels tell us that his wife approached him and started telling him about the dream that she had had that night about Jesus, that we should have nothing to do with the condemnation of Jesus. So you think it's going to go well, he's going to get him off the hook, he's all the more inspired now to release Jesus, except while he's talking with his wife, distracted, the chief priests get busy with the crowd. Start reminding them what will happen if this man goes and causes more trouble. Rome will come and kill us all. Rome will come and destroy us all. We need Jesus dead. They start making threats. Start taking down names. Start taking photos of the people here. If you don't vote to have Jesus killed, you won't be allowed in temple. They've been doing this all the way since back in, in John chapter 8. They were threatening that anybody who speaks any defense for Jesus would be kicked out of the synagogues. So they stir them all up. They get them inspired so that by the time Pilate comes back to finally release Jesus in this little opportunity, they are crying and screaming for Jesus to be crucified. God has been sovereign over this whole ordeal so that the prophecies would be fulfilled. However, not a single person who here acts out their part is innocent. The humans are ultimately responsible for their wretched plan, even though God has a, right, a righteous plan at play. The leaders are extremely je jealous. They stir up the crowd. The crowd calls out for the death of Jesus, and Pilate is seriously confused at the thirst for Jesus' blood. Look at verse uh, 12. <coughs> Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. Now he's perplexed at this. Crucifixion was the worst of executions for the worst of the criminals and you weren't even allowed to have it done to you if you were a Roman citizen. No one in high standing would have it done to them. This was a dishonorable, humiliating, excruciating, worst form of shame and murder imaginable. He's so confused. What could, be, what could be stirring them in such hatred against this man that he can't find a single thing wrong with? And while we stand here and we read this and we are, we are shocked at their bloodthirstiness against the Lord of glory, we are not confused. Because we know our scriptures, friends. We know that John has said in chapter 1 that, that, that the light has come into the world to his own people and his people refuse to bend the knee to him. John 3, Jesus would say, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and started shining and people loved the darkness, hated the light and so sought to destroy it. It is not merely because they hate Jesus the person. Many of these people may have never met Jesus, but they hate righteousness they hate God, they hate God's righteousness, therefore they hate Jesus, the very embodiment of God's law and righteousness. People love sin. People love to commit crimes against God, and any opportunity to do so, we run headlong. 
And at this moment, what we're seeing is, is what human nature can become. What every generation would do if faced with the righteousness of God in the person of Jesus in embodiment before them. This sinful generation commits the, the most sinful act that could ever be done, which is killing Jesus, and yet they are not an anomaly. They are a perfect test subject of human nature. This is you and me, the way that we are born into this world under the condemnation of the curse of God in sin because of Adam's sin in the, in the, in the garden. We are all this evil. We are all this opposed to God. So if you read what happens here with the Jews and start getting proud, start thinking, these people who, who killed Jesus, what, what is so wrong with them? I'd, I'd never do that. You're already them. Because they read the stories of the men who killed the prophets and said, who would possibly do that? I would never do that. But let's go chant for Jesus' crucifixion. Don't have any pride at this moment. Self-righteousness is soul suicide. Rather, see here the potential, the reality, the nature that we all share in and bring your own heart to repentance to God. God allowed this detail to show the full display of their rage and they commit the same sin as Pilate and worse. Pilate's sin was that he punished a righteous man out of his cowardice and self-preservation. But the Jews here pursued the righteous man to death and requested the freedom of a guilty man. Again, Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. If they had done nothing wrong before this day, at this point, the Jewish leadership and nation just became an utter abomination to the Lord. Their days are numbered and they will be destroyed for it. And yet, in this whole situation, as it wraps up in verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, not wishing to satisfy the Lord, not wishing to satisfy the law, not wishing to satisfy his conscience, but wishing to satisfy the crowd for the sake of his own political gain, he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus with whips and uh, beltings, as we will look at next week, Jesus he therefore delivered him over to be crucified. But what about Jesus at this point? We, we said thirdly, we would just look at the, at, the, at the part that God was playing in all of this. And, and it's interesting to look at Jesus. He's just so calm. Everybody else is screaming, confused, perplexed, travailing in their soul, and he is calm. He's hurting, he's bleeding, he is in pain, but he is calm. Because he knows that there is a will of the Lord at play in this moment. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says that the will of the Lord would prosper in his hand. It was the will of the Lord that was in the mind of Jesus, therefore being obeyed and lived out by Jesus, and therefore it was bringing his heart and his head into, into a calmness, a willingness to receive whatever God had ordained for him to receive. God was doing, in fact, let's say it this way, God was doing the same thing that Pilate was doing. God was doing the same thing that the Jews were doing. Pilate was killing a righteous man. So was God. The Jews were killing a righteous man and, request, and, and letting the guilty go free. So was God. And yet for God to do it, it was the most righteous act in all of history. 
that we will be singing about and giving him glory for for eternity. For the humans, it was the most unrighteous act that has ever been committed. For them, it was a wretched plot. For God, it was a righteous plan. And the difference is this. The reason that the, the folly of the people was in fact this, in the same act, the, 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 the wisdom of God, and why the, the unrighteousness of the people was in the same act, the righteousness of God, was because of this key word that if we would just memorize and drill into our understandings of all of the word of God, we would be happy, joyful, gospel-loving people. Imputation. Imputation. It is technically a financial word or a legal word by which a funds or an account or, 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 or a contract is reckoned to somebody because it's got their name on it. And yet it can be accounted to somebody else. A debt can be transferred. An inheritance can be transferred. A credit can be imputed, accounted to somebody else so that they are therefore before the eyes of the Lord reckoned and accounted and treated as if that was theirs. The Jews were pursuing the death of a righteous man they knew to be righteous. Pilate was acquitting a guilty man who should have been punished. The Jews were cheering for the release of the guilty man. But what God did between himself and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was change accounts. Because Jesus, before time began, had agreed with the Father that he would come to this earth and be the legal representative, the substitutionary sacrifice, that he who, who would represent us by substituting into our place. He had agreed that he would do that. And that a part of that would be being accounted with the sin of all those who would ever trust in him. So that in that moment of imputation, he became before the eyes of God a sinful human, never having committed his own sin and yet being responsible for our sin, being treated by God as if he had lived out personally every one of your sins. God began to treat him like that, account him like that, reckon him like that, and therefore curse him and destroy him and crush him like that. Isaiah 53 tells us it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Jews to crush him. It was the will of Pilate to crush him. But for them it was sin because between them and Jesus, there was no guilt. Between them and Jesus, there was no unrighteousness. And between them and Barabbas, there was guilt. There was murder. There was sin. But between God and Jesus, this same act of punishing him was not sin for God because between Jesus and God, a transfer of accounts had taken place. This is what we call the, the great exchange of the gospel. Because imputation goes both ways. Our sin was credited, accounted, reckoned, imputed to Christ there on the cross. So that by faith, anybody who believes this good news refuses to try and face God on their own terms, but receive the representation of Jesus. Anybody who does that by faith is not merely acquitted and let go free but is transferred, given, gifted, accounted with the righteousness of Jesus according to the law. So that God looks on you and doesn't just say, ah, it seems like there's nothing on your account. I no longer hold you condemned. But he rather, according to his own covenant, 
obligates himself to bless you with eternal, righteous, blessed life. Such is the covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he willingly undertook this. He willingly came and did all that was required of him so that Paul can write (coughs) in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God does what for man to do would be sin, and yet it is righteousness. This is why the gospel, the salvation that we needed, could never have come from us. Even if we all picked a guy, put him forward, and killed him for our own sins, he'd still be unrighteous. It would achieve nothing. Salvation had to come from the outside of the human race, into the human race, outside of the sinful race, into our sinful race, yet without sin, and then take on upon himself our sin. Only God could do this glorious thing we call the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did it. And there's this other detail here with Barabbas that, that we, we just can't get away from because if you, if you know it all, the, the sort of Hebrew names and Aramaic language, you realize that Barabbas, his name has a very peculiar meaning. Maybe you, you remember uh, reading Romans and, you know, in chapter 8, we're told that we can call on God as Abba, Father, that word Abba meaning Father. His, his name Barabbas was Bar-Father. But if you know the other parts of the Gospels, you know that people were called, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, John Bar-Jonah because his father was Jonah. Bar means son of. History also tells us, and other accounts prove out, that this man, Barabbas, his first name was Jesus. Not a fully uncommon name in that day, but his name was Jesus. So that they're standing either side of Pilate. You have guilty Jesus, son of the father, and righteous Jesus, son of the father. And you don't know which one is which. Because one of them is being acquitted by the people as righteous, guiltless, let him go free. The other person is truly guiltless and free. And yet at this moment, God is seeing him as sinful, evil, unrighteous, guilty. And this is the the beauty of the gospel, that, 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 that God has so ordained that Jesus, the son of the father, went free. He ran out and he faced his judgment later in his life or he trusted in Christ and was saved. But what we know is that Jesus, son of God, son of the father, the son, came into our earth, came into our story, came into our history, came into our destructive, sin filled world in order to bring about our salvation. Only God could have done this. And yet there is, there is no more waiting. There is, there is no more anticipation for you now. If you're, a, if you're a sinner who is still in the throes of your sin, if you are still sensing the guilt of your unrighteousness, if you're still hoping and working and pining and trying to be made righteous, this moment is good news for you. You don't have to wait a second. It was all done 2,000 years ago. You don't need to earn a single bit of righteousness. Jesus did it for you 2,000 years ago. You don't need to become strong. Jesus died while you were weak. You don't need to please the Father. Jesus pleased the Father. You don't need to suffer any punishment for your sin. 
Jesus suffered it all. Your job is to believe today. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait another one. Don't wait another week. Today is the day that God beckons you forward to receive the fullness that comes to us through Jesus Christ. May that be today for you. Let's pray. Father God, we are so so in horror as we consider the evil that was done against the Lord Jesus Christ. And on a human level, he is a martyr. He is a, uh, he is a, a, a political victim. He is a religious uh, a victim. He has been a, abused and assaulted and in weakness and humiliation. And on a human level, there's, there's, just, there's nothing but pity that we have for this man. And yet, Lord, the word, the word of God gives us and tells us through the, through the years of history, proclaims forth that the man who died that day was not just Jesus of Nazareth, but the Son of God come into flesh. And we understand from what the apostles wrote down and preached and proclaimed and what we believe today, that Jesus was more than just a, a human being accused and killed. He was in your glorious gospel plan. He was the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Lord, there are some in this room this morning who are still wearing, still walking under, still walking in the guilt of their own sin. Like the Jews, like Pilate, they are self-preserving. They are preferring sin to you. They are guilty, and yet they sense it, and they are suffering under it. And we pray, Lord God, that at this moment you would direct their eyes. You would give them a new heart. You would direct the eyes of their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sinners like them, who offers out redemption, and who after dying for us rose again to glorious life so that we can know that if I trust him, I too will have eternal life. Father God, please give new faith into hearts this morning. And for those of us who follow Jesus, those of us who trust in his sacrifice, may we be refreshed and renewed this morning with the reminder of the imputed righteousness, the given righteousness that is infinite and eternal and unchangeable kept for us in heaven. We cannot pass out of it. We cannot increase it. We cannot decrease it. We are righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, also as we walk into this life and into this world and we... we, we uh, have responsibilities and jobs and neighbors and enemies and friends and a mission to accomplish for you and a family, all of these things, may we remember as Jesus remembered that you have a divine will that is being carried out and that in our moments of suffering or false accusation, we can rest easy on the sovereignty of him who judges justly, that you would never let us suffer in vain, but all is for the glory of Christ. Would you encourage us with this word this morning from Jesus' example, and may we remember the glories of the gracious promises in the gospel. And everybody said, amen. amen.